Good afternoon and welcome to this Encore edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest today is Wesley Lowry, the Pulitzer Prize winning author and former correspondent for the Washington Post, Boston Globe, and CBS News, who's written a thoughtful, imaginative, and sobering book about the rise of white nationalist violence. While violence against people of color has long been a staple of the American story, Lowry examines the pernicious increase in racial violence since the years of the Obama presidency. He explores about a half a dozen incidents of racial violence all over the country in which people of color were brutally and fatally attacked, illuminating and honoring the suffering of the victims and those close to them and chronicling why the perpetrators carried out these heinous acts. It's an insightful look at our national story and our national shame, replete with original reporting and original thinking about what Lowry calls the defining force of our time. The book is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Wesley Lowry joined me in Studio A in early July. Wesley, it's good to see you. Of course, it's great to be here. Happy to be here in Baltimore. Yeah, happy to have you back. It's been a minute since you were on the show. We talked about your last book uh, a few years ago, but this book, American White Lash, uh, I just think it's a really important and beautifully crafted uh, thesis about what's going on uh, with this white nationalist movement and about what's going on with the racial polarity in the country. The word white lash. I mean, it's it's premised in, I suppose, a lot of things, but uh, to a certain extent, this this notion that uh, white people are feeling themselves discriminated against. Certainly, right. I think it's always important when we have these conversations to root them in the knowledge and the explicit expression of the fact that race is not a biological reality, right? It's a socialized construct, right? And so when we, in the United States of America, what, we, what we're talking about when we're talking about whiteness is, is we're talking about people who are racialized socially that way. That, that is a group that has expanded and changed over the years. It's not a static. It's not a biological function. It's about the way we're perceived um, in the society that we've constructed. And and so in our country, back going back since before its inception, we codified this idea of whiteness in our laws, right? We, we created a, a racialized distinction that one set of people were going to be treated this way, another set of people were created this, treated this other way. And, and one of the, the chief challenges of our, of our nation has been trying to, to grapple with how much of that racialized caste system we will retain versus how much of it we, we will uh, overcome and, and, and push towards a multiracial democracy. And, and what we've seen over the course of history is that at moments when there are steps towards multiracial democracy in a more multicultural society, what we see is a, a backlash, an often violent backlash, targeted towards the people who... Um, targeted towards people who are pushing for multiracial democracy from those who benefit from a system of this racialized caste system, people who are socialized as white. One statistic I like to ground all these conversations in is, you know, by the end of the Obama administration, and Barack Obama's elected at a time of massive upheaval and demographic change, and I know, I know we'll talk about that, so it's not just the election of a black president. There's a lot going on. A big economic downturn. Economic crisis, foreign wars, right? Like, you know, and 
historic, unprecedented demographic change via immigration, more immigration than we'd ever seen in a, in a, in a period of time. And by the end of the Obama years, 55% of white Americans believe they are racially discriminated against, right? By the end of a black presidency, the average white person believed they were a racial minority, <laughs> right? Yeah. That begins to explain a lot about what we see in the decade to come. You write that to study white supremacists is to examine a collection of broken people who see their own hardships and traumas as evidence that they are the world's victims. And it, in a way, it's almost paradoxical that this fear of white replacement, so-called white mm -hmm. replacement theory, this is how Tucker Carlson, you know, made his bread and butter, uh, you know, what are they replacing? They're replacing some broken, you know, uh, horrible uh, state of affairs. Um, there's a paradox. Of course, there's a lot of paradoxes in this, and then who can make, you know, philosophical uh, sense out of it. But um, this notion that, that, that white people will be replaced, um, and, and you write about how it's, it's not, it, we, we, we tend to, to make um, racialized arguments uh, a black-white thing, but the immigration, which you've just uh, alluded to, is a huge part of this as well. It's a massive part of it. Uh, when we think about it, there has been no point at which we have seen more demographic shift and a higher percentage of people entering the country and, and making up the population who are who are immigrants than in this period of our history, right? And what we know about this period of our history is that almost all of the people coming over are being racialized as non-white. That we're, what we are seeing are white Americans having to interact at a higher clip, a higher percentage with people who are not like them. And they're having those interactions at times when technology has changed the economy, changed the way we communicate with our, each other, changed our world. It's happening at a time when there is real discomfort and anxiety about big pressing issues, whether it be climate or, or like I said, the global economy, uh, about the, the way we govern and democracy and w whether it works and whether we should embrace other forms of government, right? So there's this anxiety across the country and what we see in those moments is political leaders and political, what we see in those moments are political leaders and political parties who have attempted to play to that anxiety as a means of solidifying their own political power, right? That prejudice is something that's natural. We all have it, right? It's not in and of itself, a, you know, a deficit of character or value. We walk down the street and we say, oh, that person's attractive. That person's unattractive. That person seems, that person appears nice. That person appears threatening, right? We're making judgments. We're just making yeah. judgments, right? As the, in the nature of, well, this is how we survive as living beings, right? We make a bunch of small decisions and, and gauge risk based on prior experiences or prejudices, right? And so we all have them and, and we all have natural prejudices against uh, or, or that provide a skepticism of people who are different than us, right? That who we don't have the same experience with, or we don't feel the same camaraderie, or we worry that they won't take us as part of their tribe. And so we, but what happens is, and so that here we have a moment where we're all now being surrounded by more people who are different than us, right? That, and, and for some, 
Americans, especially white Americans in the segregated society we live in, all it takes is a family or two to move into a neighborhood and suddenly it feels as if there's been a massive change in the place where you live. Much less the cultural changes, where suddenly the Little Mermaid's black and Spider-Man's an Afro-Latino and right, Beyonce's playing the Super Bowl, not Springsteen. And, you know, like that, that you have all these, these, these things that happen. And again, the feeling of discomfort or prejudice, that is it not in and of itself, uh, uh, like I said, a detriment. But what ends up happening is when you have po powerful public figures who play to those prejudices, who voice them themselves, it provides a permission structure for people to now say, oh, well, I'm not the only one who feels that way about X, Y, and Z. I, I note in the book there's a sociologist, Gordon Alpert, and he, he tracks how when you have public figures who are willing to traffic and dehumanizing language, what you end up seeing is that those internalized prejudices, that they evolve. They evolve first to segregation. Well, all right, I'm going to stay away from people like that. Then they get to active discrimination. I'm not going to choose that person for my kickball team. I'm not going to hire them for the job. I'm not going to invite them to the block party. Then it gets to interpersonal violence. Now I'm going to take extra offense to when they bump into me or I'm going to... And finally, that gets up to bigger systemic, structural, and even explicitly societal you know, violence. So it's, it's how we get to the big policy decisions that undermine um, and actively attack uh, minority groups, much less the actual kind of active programs that we see in Rwanda or, or, or Nazi Germany, right? And so I say a lot to say, in moments in which big portions of the population are going to be experiencing some type of prejudice, interacting with people who they haven't interacted with before. There's a real question, and, and I think that sometimes we let ourselves off the hook about what our responsibility is in the public square to not be, whether it be platforming or not ourselves, be trafficking in rhetoric that plays to those prejudices because it does, it does lead somewhere, and that somewhere is violence. Wesley Lowry, the book is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. And you, you date this, or at least you, you choose to, to start your chronicle at the Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the, the initial reaction to Obama that, oh, praise the Lord, we're post-racial, we got over that pretty quick. We did. We did. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a little uh, naive. But, yeah. But, but we, got, we got beyond that one. But wh why is, I mean, and, and, and it seems that this, this work is a, a really wonderful extension of the work of Carol Anderson from yes. Emory University, who wrote a book called White Rage. Exactly. And she makes the point that black advancement is always the thing that triggers white reaction, backlash, white lash, whatever we want to call it. So we have uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction, that triggers Jim Crow. We have mm -hmm. uh, Brown versus Board of Education, that triggers a gazillion private schools so that your kid doesn't have to attend a, uh, classes with a, an African-American child. Uh, the, the Obama presidency in particular um, why, why do you think, I mean, obviously it was a huge, you know, volcanic eruption in the, in the racial history of the country when a black man was elected. Um, but it, it really did seem to galvanize people in a, in a way that nothing else had galvanized them before. Well, I think that, and Carol does, I mean, she's one of my favorite historians, one of my favorite people to read, and, and, and she builds on this even further in, uh, was it one person, one vote, her, her book on voting rights that, she, that came out later. And there is this 
What we see is that, and, and I, I think I write this in the preface or in the early in the booklet, I actually think it's useful and it's helpful while the book starts, while this era kind of starts at Obama. Well, I actually think it's helpful to think about Obama not as the beginning of something, but as the continuation of something that was already happening, in that Barack, that if we look at our history, our era of multiracial democracy begins in the 60s, right? That we have a distinct, clear foundationally different period of American history that begins once we are a multiracial democracy, mm-hmm. right? And that the election of a president from a group that previously suffered under our racialized apartheid is downstream of the beginning of multiracial democracy, right? The fact that the president is black is not actually a foundational shift in the country. It's a thing that is empowered by the foundational shift that happened in the 60s, right? Could not have happened before. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. right. It it couldn't have happened in a non-multiracial democracy, Mm -hmm. right? But that the morning after Barack Obama was elected, we were not actually a foundationally different country in terms of how our laws worked, what our structures were, our X, Y, and Z, right? And so as we think about that, that starts to group this entire period of time, 60s, 70s, the 80s, the 90s, into the 2000s, as this period of multiracial democracy. And, and then we can start looking at and seeing and thinking about, okay, how did our country respond? What was the backlash to all of it, right? Both in terms of more mainstream political backlash, as well then as, as the backlash from actual avowed white supremacists, right? On the one hand, and this is where I think it's been documented really well, in Carol's work and in others, we see the desegregation of schools, or, or the, the, we see efforts at the desegregation of public schools lead to the segregation of schools through the creation of private schools and the homeschooling movement, right? We see the creation of the American suburbs uh, following the, on, the, the continued and now because of school desegregation accelerated flight from the American cities um, and their surroundings and their first ring suburbs. We see a... Um, we see massive crackdowns on black civil rights and black advancement through, uh, through both federal and local law enforcement. We see, we see the tightening and the rollback of some of the social services programs provided under the Great Society and LEJ, that under the Nixon and Reagan years. Right? We, see, we see all of this kind of pushback and all these other things that lead us all, you know, lead us all the way basically to our present moment, right? Um, but what we also see is a white supremacist movement that was once one of, I like to think of almost warring denominations, right? That the reality was, you go back to the 1960s and an American Nazi and a Klansman didn't, were just as likely to, to open fire at each yeah, other as they were other. at anyone else, right. right? Because the reality is, well, they had some common enemies. The identity of a Klansman it was dispositionally opposed to that of, you know, of a European fascist or a Nazi, right? But the historian David Chalmers, who wrote Hooded, American, uh, Hooded Americanism, it's the definitive history of the Klan, he writes that for all of its history until this point, the Klan is dispositionally conservative. They were winning. They were living in a white supremacist society. They were trying to keep things the way that they are. So all you got to do is, you know, prevent people from getting the wrong idea in their head about what they might be able to change. You're not yeah. actually having to overthrow anything. The lynchings were working. 
Yeah. Correct. Well, and that's they were effective, and it's yeah. certainly true. Even I mean, it's certainly true pre. You know, it's it's certainly true. Um, initially, they are able to end Reconstruction post emancipation. They're able to lock, enter in and usher in an era of Jim Crow, and then they, and then again in the sixties, they they kind of. But what ends up happening is following civil rights in the 50s and 60s. Now that we have entered a multiracial democracy, that we have this foundational shift, the American white supremacist stops being a dispositionally conservative and they become a dispositionally revolutionary. They now believe they have to fundamentally change the way the country works and take it back to something it used to be. And once you become revolutionary, it begins to justify a level of indiscriminate violence. It begins to justify a, a, a level. Uh, it just totally changes your tactics. Not not to not to suggest that the violence of the earlier clans was not uh, horrific and of scale, right? But but it was specific and different in ways that are separate than say the Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City, or um, or the shooters at Tree of Life, or in Charleston, or in Buffalo, right? These kind of public attacks where where you're very often attacking a, a mixture of innocent people with no pretext, right? That, that if you wanted to burn down Tulsa in 1921, you at least had to make it about, uh, you, you know, well, the, we're avenging this person who's been wronged, and then they shot, you know, there was a different pretext for this kind of scale of violence versus these targeted terroristic attacks uh, that that I do think there's some distinction. So anyway, that's the era we've been in and that we're in now. And, and that type of violence, that indiscriminate, proactive white supremacist violence is really what I wanted to document in this book. Yeah, and you, you go into a wonderful deep dive on so many of these different incidences, a, a Jewish center in Overland Park, Kansas, a Sikh temple in Illinois, uh, uh, Richard Collins uh, accosted at a bus stop right here in Maryland. We'll talk more about it on the other side of a quick break. Wesley Lowry, his new book is called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Wesley Lowry will be with us for the hour here on Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stick around. We'll be right back. back to an archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're listening to a conversation I had in July with Wesley Lowry, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's the executive editor of the Investigating Workshop at American University. We're talking about his latest book, American Whitelash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Today's program was pre-recorded, so we can't take any new calls or online comments. So, Wesley, back to President Obama. Um, he was criticized during his presidency and post-presidency for not doing enough, uh, for not moving the needle, uh, for somehow squandering the opportunity he had as the first black president. And you quote 
uh, and historian, uh, per- forgive me if I'm pronouncing the name wrong, Kamange Felix, mm-hmm. um, who wrote just about a year ago, what we expected of the Obama administration was beyond what the framework of the presidency allowed. So why do you think that's true? Because the opposite is certainly true, that the framework of the Trump presidency mm-hmm. allowed all sorts of stuff on the other side of the pendulum. Well, I think there are a few things. I think that, you know, first and foremost, I, I think that we have to recall and remember the the razor's edge on which the Obama presidency had to dance. That that you cannot govern this country without the support of a significant portion of white Americans who, as we see and as we know, are remarkably sensitive to any belief that the scale has now been tipped in the other direction in any way. Uh, Barack Obama, early on his presidency, makes a big point to talk about how he is a, a president for all Americans, right? That he is not, and and he very often eschews pro, uh, programs, policies, rhetoric that would be seen as being proactively uh, black specifically, and rather, that was much more universal in program, uh, this idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and so because of that, I mean, that is dispositionally different than the theory of change and the advocacy um, that is held by many and probably most black activists and black Americans, that if there's a uniquely black problem, there have to be uniquely black remedies to it, and it's not actually a just, let's fix the economy for everyone and that'll help black people, uh, because if the thought is that the status quo is currently inequitable, lifting the status quo two levels only perpetuates an inequity. Higher inequitable. Correct. Um, But beyond that also, I, I think that, you know, we also have to think about what the challenges are. If you, if you believe in institution, it, at its core, has some real structural deficits and difficulties. Real things that have to be shifted and changed, upended, reconsidered. Very rarely is the correct person to do that, Some the person running the organization. Uh, there's a vested interest that, that as the chief, as the leader and chief spokesperson of the American empire, <laughs> uh, it is impossible then to also be the chief critic of the American empire or, or the person who's going to come in and do the audit. Right. And and so I I think that there was a uh, but I think beyond that, though, I think in the same way that the Trump administration, through its often explicitly bigoted rhetoric and its willingness to play to those white anxieties, it the Obama administration provided a permission structure for those on the left and for, I think, black Americans specifically to demand more and to want more and to push things beyond, right? That there was a, this was a victory of representa- uh, representational politics. That is not nothing. That is ex- of extreme significance no, huge, that right. matters, right? And one of its significances is that it inspires a bunch of people to now say, okay, what's next? <laughs> How do we go beyond? How do we want more? What are the failings or the limitations of this, right? Because we're no longer dreaming of it. It's no longer a counterfactual. Yeah, what, what if we had a black guy? What could we fix? Well, now we know. 
<laughs> and what isn't fixed? Okay, now how do we do that? And and so it ins- not unlike what individual cities have gone through. Correct. I mean, you know, Alabama's full of towns with black mayors. You know, Mississippi's full of towns with black mayors. Maryland is full of towns with black mayors. And again, one of the victories of representational politics is that having someone in that position allows other people who are who who identify with that person to look around and provide an assessment to say, okay, what did this fix? What didn't this fix? Or, oh, wait, he tried to fix this thing and this is how it got stymied. Oh, he's in, we can't run this through Congress because X, Y, and Z reason, right? And so suddenly you start to see an innovation of solutions or application of solutions in explicitly political ways, right? Not that these ideas or policy ideas haven't been there. Not that there's not 200 years of literature about how to resolve and solve some of these things. But it's that until you are in a position to actually try to address the racial wealth gap and actually have people in the positions inclined to want to do the thing to see, okay, well, this is the limitation and this is why we can't do it this way and this is what's not working, that then forces a consideration of, okay, so how do we actually get it done? And so, like I said, I do think that, I think it's unsurprising that you see movements like Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter rise up during the Obama years, movements that from Obama's political allies to his left that rise up to push things further in that direction because they see what the limitations of the black presidency are. You call it the defining force of our time, mm-hmm. this, this, the white fears that are fueling this white nationalist uh, activity and violence. I wonder, are things like the Supreme Court decision and affirmative action endemic of that? Uh, it, it's not just happening in the, in the individual instances in which that you chronicle and report so beautifully on in this book, but, you know, systemically it's happening too. And the talk about this, I, I don't know if tension is the right word, but talk about the dichotomy between that the individual bigotry of certain people and the systemic institutional racism that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, helped bring to the fore of consciousness for a lot of white America. So going back to prejudice, if we all possess it, and we all have it, and we all know that one of our prejudices is going to be about people who are different than us, and the idea that those people might uh, they, they might take things that, that we need, that there might be a scarcity of resources or opportunity, that their success might come at our detriment, and we know that we have a majority white country that is increasingly seeing racialized immigration that is that is threatening that white majority. We know that we're going to be living in a time historically where for the first time these white Americans do not have the sole claim and a monopoly on the exercise of political power. Now, everyone also gets to vote, but actually if enough of these people show up, they can take things over, right? It makes sense that in this era of multiracial democracy... That majority and its anxiety and its feelings of fear have the power to, in these massive ways, shape our society and the things that are happening. And what we see, and I think are seeing, is no matter where that anxiety manifests on the scale, from the interpersonal prejudice to the active discrimination to active individual violence to group violence, right, we're seeing all of those things play out. All at once. And so we're seeing systemic steps to actively uh, embed and retain inequities that exist in the system as is. 
We're seeing steps to institute new inequities. We're seeing steps to undo reparative steps we had taken previously, right? That all of these questions remain, um, and, and it all remains a battlefield. And so when we look at affirmative action, you said in this white lash, I was thinking primarily about actual violence, the very end of the scale. When you look at the affirmative action decision, though, what you do see is a years-long, decades-long program and movement to undermine efforts to try to create some level of parity in higher education. And, and that those efforts to create parity, efforts that, by the way, I do think there are real critiques of and there may be flaws to. Right? It's not to say that every program is perfect or that, that, you know, that this was the right remedy. Right? There are means to, uh, to oppose affirmative action. They're not in and of themselves uh, critiques of the ideas of creating more parity and equity. But this program to undermine affirmative action was rooted and was based very foundationally in the fear and the anxiety that was kicked up among white Americans that somehow the scales had been tipped against them. That when you think about white lash, when you think about anxiety, it's really interesting to look at Clarence Thomas and, and even just read his own words. Uh, my friend Joel Anderson hosted a podcast on Slate recently, uh, Slow Burn, four episodes looking at Clarence Thomas and his history. And Clarence Thomas is someone who benefits from affirmative action. And he writes about how much he despised being in those rooms and all these white people telling him he didn't deserve to be there. Well, what we would now call those things microaggressions, right? Um, but so this is Clarence Thomas. We're more conservative listeners. Clarence Thomas was the one writing about the microaggressions he faced, right? The, uh, but, but he, he says... He writes about how the response from so much of white America was to dehumanize him because he was the beneficiary of something that was trying to help create it, trying to recognize his humanity and create a parody, right? That is white lash. That's the point, right? Like, that when we take these steps towards progress, there is, a, there is a pushback and a fight back, and it is not always pure violence. Sometimes it's rhetorical. Sometimes it's interpersonal. Sometimes it's segregational. But it's the sense of, I don't like this. This threatens the, the status quo that serves me, and so I'm going to fight back against it. And as you say in the book, sometimes it's violent. Yes, that certainly. It's just so, so horrifying. The book is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Wesley Lowry is the author. Um, you know a lot about data. We first talked years ago about the data you were collecting on police shootings, uh, your book about Baltimore and Ferguson, uh, and about the relationship between communities of color and police departments, um, relied on data that was very sketchy so that you you stepped up and made sure that that data was, was better. Um, it's still sketchy. You write in this mm -hmm. book uh, that it's really difficult to know uh, the actual numbers of federal hate crime data. And then there's data and then there's stories. And mm. that's what you're telling in this book. You're telling these stories and the backgrounds. Um, I want to talk before we go to a break about the origins of Charlottesville and sure. the Unite the Right uh, rally that ended in the tragedy of Heather Iyer being run over by the white supremacist uh, Kessler. The, this, this begins with a 15-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. that we forget that we forget that the unite the right rally the summer of hatred in charlottesville begins with a young woman z bryant she's 15 years old 
writing an essay, if I remember correctly, for her English class, where they were asked to write about something they could do to make the world they live in a better place. And this young black woman who'd grown up in Charlottesville, Virginia, said, I've never really understood why we have all these Confederate statues everywhere. These people would have hated me. They wouldn't have wanted me to live here. That doesn't make me feel great. So she writes she, she writes an essay for an eighth grade English class. Uh, her teacher says, this is great. And you're precocious and interested. It's, you know, you, you should do something about this. And so she writes it as a letter to the editor to the local paper. And they create like a little like GoFundMe petition or something right there. Again, this is this is the activism of a, a middle school student. And suddenly, things go haywire. The, the local white supremacist groups show up to, to oppose this, even as the local city council says, hey, well, maybe we'll, you know, let's, let's do a commission. Let's think about this. Good for our precocious, hardworking kids. This is a reasonable thing. You're asking us to look at it. We'll look at it, right? The way that we actually want our society to, to work largely, right? We want our children to believe they can change the world for the better. If they have a good idea, they should express it and try it. Yeah, and, we certainly want them involved. Right. right? And, and what happens in response to this child writing an essay is that the nation's white supremacists throw a rally in her, they begin doing torch marches through her town, and ultimately culminating in a massive rally where someone is murdered. Right? That, now, I think there's a few things there. The first is that I think in our news media ecosystem, in our environment, things move so quickly, they move so hard, that we actually very rarely actually get to pull the string all the way back. And say, where did this really begin? What really, how do I understand this? How do I contextualize this? But second, I think that there is a, I, I think that there is something important to understand about this relationship between white supremacist activism and anti-racist activism, that it's a tug of war. There's always a push and pull back and forth. That, that look, Z. Bryant writes her essay in part because of the, the racist pro-Confederate activism of, of the Jim Crow era, of putting up all these Confederate statues in a town that hadn't been controlled by these, you know, the Robert Lee, Lee had never made it to Charlottesville, and yet there was a massive statue of him in it, right? This was a, on the day of emancipation, Charlottesville is a majority black city. So emancipation would have been a great day for the average resident of Charlottesville. And yet this creation, this activist, anti-historical creation of a myth, that this was some heartbeat of the Confederacy and some, like, in response to that activism, a young black woman d does an act of activism of her own. And in response to that, <laughs> and so there's this back and forth. And modern day Char Charlottesville yes. is a very liberal bastion of, uh, you know, the left side of the aisle. I mean, 80% the, of the voters in Charlottesville, you report, voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. The, the mayor at the time had said he wanted, because Donald Trump had just gotten elected, he said he wanted Charlottesville to be the capital of the resistance. Right. But actually, and I think that's why really in Charlottesville is important and interesting. One of the subtexts of the books, it's not just subtext, I, I dive into it, is this question of in a moment of increased racialized violence, what do we, in violence that would, in movements that would undermine and undo our multiracial democracy, what is the role and responsibility of liberal institutions? And I don't mean that politically liberal. I mean institutions that believe in multiracial democracy, right? That believe in expression and speech and, and a marketplace of ideas. And what we see, 
And what I would suggest, to be right, is I, I think that there have been failings of our institutions to hold as our first principle that belief in multiracial democracy. The, we, the Charlottesville rally happens only because of the legal petitioning of the ACLU, right? And, and it's this question. And so I think we have to face this question of, and, and Donald Trump's rise is aided and abetted by the inclination of the mass media to say, well, He's a public figure. Whatever he says, let's put it on our airwaves over and over and over and over again. Let's let's let him use our platforms to proselytize. And so I think that what we have to think about is if our we can have values, multiracial democracy, multicultural society, equality, equity for all. And then we can have a value of speech and discourse and debate. But what happens when someone would use one of those values to attack the other, right? That, that we can't actually prior, we have to have some hierarchy. We can't, bo- we can't prioritize both a complete openness of speech and expression and a multiracial democracy. Because we have powerful figures who will use that speech and expression. Or we got to curate it in some way, you know. There I... always has been a curator. And I think that in this moment, we had real difficulty adjusting and moving and calibrating and thinking. And hey, maybe we shouldn't assist in the homicidal torch rally. <laughs> Perhaps this is a bad thing. <laughs> and, and, and that that does require a value judgment, right? And, 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 I think and, it, and, how... and the homicidal dimension of it was predictable. And people and were people predicting in Char- Charlottesville saying to the mayor and the city council, cancel the permit. Don't they let are this going happen. to do these things yeah. and let us show you. They, they're, we're in their group chats. We see what they're posting on. They're talking in these ways. And, and the problem was the anti-racist activists, the people who took this seriously, were not believed and were not listened to. And we know what happened since. The book is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. The author is my guest, Wesley Lowry, a former correspondent at the Washington Post and CBS News. He's currently the executive editor of the Investigating Workshop at American University. We spoke when he was in town in July for an appearance at the Enoch Pratt Library. We'll have more of my conversation with Wesley Lowry on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. Stay with us. Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. In 2017, the acclaimed historian Carol Anderson of Emory University published a powerful book called White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Anderson observes that the trigger for white rage inevitably is black advancement. Today, we're listening to a conversation I had with Wesley Lowry, who expands and continues Anderson's excellent work in his latest book. It's called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Lowry profiles several victims of racial hate crimes and their murderers in what he calls, quote, an attempt to put human faces on the relentless cycle of violence that has defined American history, to put flesh and bone on our discussion of white supremacist terror. 
a terror that increased dramatically after the election of President Barack Obama in 2008. Wesley Lowry and I spoke in early July because our show was pre-recorded. We can't take any calls or comments today. Wesley, we see in the news uh, just in the last couple of days a, a, a white supremacist uh, who's camped out next to the jail in Washington, D.C., walking around with guns in the back of his truck and uh, responding to President, uh, former President Trump's publication of what he said was Barack Obama's address in Washington, D.C. Um, this has not abated even a little bit. It doesn't matter how many indictments are handed down and jail sentences are handed down in the January 6th uh, insurrection. It doesn't matter uh, how many electoral defeats uh, these candidates suffer. This just, this isn't going away. Uh, What is the the path forward? Well, I think first and foremost, and this sounds easier than it is because I think we really don't like doing it. I think we really have to grapple at scale with the reality of what is happening that that we have to grapple with the fact that we are seeing our nation's white majority increasingly anxious and increasingly hostile that we are seeing political charlatans take advantage of that hostility and that anxiety for their own gain and that all of these things are attacks and manifest in attacks on our multiracial democracy. And that seems simple enough, right? And with a little hindsight, it seems easier to claim that. But there are so many people in our politics and our society who would deny that that is true, who would argue that everything we're saying here is made up. These are political talking points. It's not real. That there's, And, and I think that that's, I think there's a real danger to that. Um, to our inability to see the facts for what they are because we can't remedy problems if we don't agree on what the diagnosis is in the first place. Uh, Beyond that, though, we also have to... um, It's why I think it it really matters that our our institutions not serve a gatekeeping role because I don't think it's possible to gatekeep now. Um, The, you know, the... The public square has been democratized. We all own printing presses. We can all say things and do things, right? But I do think that the role of our media institutions is to facilitate the public square, right? That doesn't mean we're the moderators. That doesn't mean that everyone always listens to our, you know, our instructions about how long their answers should be or that they always ask a question instead of a comment, right? But that we do our best. Right. And that and that we help guide those conversations. We help root them in facts and shared information that we don't throw crazy open-ended questions out, but that we actually guide people to shared agreement, that we don't let the panel discussion get hijacked over a debate about something that doesn't matter <laughs> or allow someone to filibuster by saying things that aren't true, right? That, that, our, that our goal, our aim is to facilitate conversation in ways that is productive. And, and I think... And that, easier said than done. Much easier said than done. Yeah. Look, we, I, we say this, I say this, and we talk as practitioners of this, and we both, you know, have interviews we'd take back or do differently or just would make 5% better or what, sure. you know, oh, that was a dumb question. I should ask this other one. I should, you know, and, and the difficulty of doing it live is just a whole other animal, right? But I think that there's, there's something to be said for what our role is in this moment. And that's obviously the perspective I think of the most because it's the profession I'm in. 
you write uh, about Richard Collins, mm. uh, ROTC student uh, here in Maryland, um, stabbed to death uh, at a bus stop mm-hmm. uh, uh, a few years ago. And the background of that, which th- this just took my breath away, that his father lost his own father because of a racial attack in the 1950s. Um, the legacy of that, the lineage between Richard Collins, who was killed here in Maryland, and his grandfather is just stunning. I think that we sometimes like to pretend, and we like to pretend because it services a lot of people, that our history is further back than it actually is. That, you know, there was a project Reuters did, excellent journalism project, where they looked at major elected officials across the United States and how many of them are direct descendants of someone who enslaved people. All these politicians, all these elected officials. And by the way, the responses were very illuminating. Most most of the people just ignored it. But then, you know, you had a defensiveness or you had a rending of garments and there was this kind of spectrum. And it was just very interesting to see how people responded and grappled with this thing. But I was talking to a group of friends, a bunch of black writers in like one of our group chats and we were talking about how, and someone was talking about how you know, four generations, like, that, that isn't that much. It's like your grandmother's grandmother, right? He was saying, yeah, I'm going to get it wrong, but he was saying something like, my grandmother explained to me how to make banana bread because her grandmother had taught it to her this way. You know, like, there's a world where there's, like, such a direct, this is not beyond the realm of possibility. These are people who actually, the things they knew, their direct knowledge is possessed by people alive today. Right? Um, and I have had conversations with my grandparents about their grandparents. Right. This is not that. Sure. And so I say that to say that I think sometimes black Americans, and I imagine this is true for other uh, minority groups, um, but I just speak from my own experience. Right. I think we often understand that. We know that. We know that the past was not that long ago, in part because our family members are people who lived through it and who talk about it. And I think sometimes for folks who maybe if they were to do a more honest assessment, looking backwards might not be the happiest about everything or the way they might have benefited or what the role of their family might have been, right? There's a much more, there's much more incentive to expand that time out, <laughs> to have it be a thing that is bigger and wider and broader um, and more distant. Not a thing to grapple with, not a thing to think about, not a thing to get into the details of. Yeah. Reparations and, don't matter to me. And what's right. remarkable in this moment is with the technological advances, with DNA and ancestry, with the newspaper archives, with the, we now have access in many ways to far more information than we ever had before. And it allows us to see more clearly a history that we couldn't quite see before. Let me finish up by asking about this notion of lone wolves, because mm-hmm. you talk about some of these perpetrators of this racial violence, um, particularly a guy that uh, killed people at a Jewish community center in Overland Park, Kansas who, when he was arrest, arrested, told the cops, I'm an anti-Semite. How many did I get? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- he wasn't subtle about this. He wasn't you know, secretive about it. Um, and you say it'd be reductive to think of him as a lone wolf because he bathed in the filthy waters of bigotry. I mean, this rhetoric by the Trumps of the world um, matters very, very much. Uh, that rhetoric just simply has to stop. We have to figure out a way of 
of having that rhetoric stopped. When we dehumanize people and allow people to be dehumanized in the public square, those people are no longer treated by humans or like humans, right? And that should be unsurprising to us. But I think sometimes, again, I think we get so in our head thinking about how we value expression and debate and speech, all of which extremely important, things I value deeply. But we have to remember, and I'll just go back to, what do we hold true and what do we hold as our first principle in a multiracial democracy? Is it unnegotiable, unmutable? And if so, everything else has to comport with that. Wesley Lowry. The book is called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Wesley Lowry is the executive editor of the Investigating Workshop at American University and the winner of a Pulitzer Prize. We spoke in July. That'll do it for this encore edition of Midday. I hope you'll subscribe to the Midday podcast, available wherever you get your pods. To let us know about stories and topics you'd like us to cover, drop us an email. The address is midday at wypr.org. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.